0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to the FCPA Compliance Report. First, have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? You wanted to talk about something in the compliance or compliance-related field, but really had no idea how to get started? Take a listen from our sponsor, One Stone Creator. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. And as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business. And One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. In today's episode, I take things in a little bit different direction as I'm the one being interviewed. This time by Sean Friedland, the Senior Product Marketing Manager Compliance at Hanzo. It's about a project commissioned by Hanzo which became a part of the Hanzo Q1 2019 Compliance Risk and Regulations Research Roundup. It was a fascinating exercise for me and the resulting white paper I think is very significant for the compliance practitioner. We take a look at uh, what went into the writing Uh, What were some of the key macro findings? What were some of the key micro business findings? What were the key regulatory findings? And frankly, or rather finally, where is compliance going and where has it been? I know you will enjoy it. Finally, the FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Uh, Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox uh, back for another episode. And we are going to do something a little bit different today because I have with me Sean Friedland with Hanzo. And Sean and I, uh, actually, Sean's going to interview me in large part for this podcast, so I rarely get to be interviewed on my own podcast. But the reason uh, I'm going to be interviewed on this podcast is Hanzo commissioned me to write uh, a Q1 2019 Compliance Risk and Regulations Research Roundup, and Sean was the person I worked with on this project. So I thought it'd be a great opportunity to talk about this project, talk about the research, talk about the paper, and have Sean talk a little bit about the final product because it's more encompassing than uh, my contribution. But it turned out to be a really interesting paper and something that really I think every compliance practitioner needs to read for uh, sort of where we've been, but more importantly, where we're going. So Sean, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, first of all, welcome and thank you for uh, doing this with me.
1: Thank you, Tom. I'm happy to be here and uh, looking forward to flipping the script a little bit and, uh, you know, shining the spotlight on you for once. But, uh, you know, as a longtime listener uh, and big fan, I'm excited to be here.
0: So, Sean, let's just start with uh, you were the one who proposed this project to me. So perhaps you could tell us or at least set the stage of what is the Hanzo Q1 2019 Compliance Risk and Regulations Research Roundup?
1: Yeah, thank you. Of course. So basically what I've noticed um, more so now than in the past is that so many of these compliance vendors, law firms, um, you know, institutions are conducting a really unique research throughout the year um, about trends and, and regulatory enforcement, about their own kind of data that they've collected as a company um, to help kind of prove the importance and impact that compliance has on organizations. Um, and in Q1 2019 especially, there was a ton of really great work. Ethosphere, NAVEX, Baker McKenzie, the World Economic Forum, all these organizations were publishing all of this really, you know, fantastic research. Um, and as a marketer, you know, I probably have a little bit more time to read it than the average chief compliance officer or compliance professional, who we all know is, you know, really busy and juggling a ton of responsibility. And you know, all in, there were over a hundred pages of research. And you know, I found it all to be pretty important, but I could understand how it would be hard for someone to keep up with all of that data and what it meant. Um, let alone reading all of it, or digesting all of it, or connecting the dots between what these pieces um, had in common with each other. Which is where I thought you came in, Tom. And and you know, you're obviously really tuned into the industry and understand. Um the risks and challenges of a compliance professional really well. And we wanted to work with you to really break down some of the key themes and data in all these different reports and really create an executive summary um, that someone could read you know during their lunch break, over the weekend, during their commute, it's about twelve pages long to really um, get the gist of what these reports were were driving at. Um, and you know, open them up to read the full report if they'd like, but without having to kind of commit that time give them the nuggets of data that they need to to really understand where the compliance and risk landscape is changing for the next year. Uh,
0: So, Sean, I'm actually going to turn it over to you and let you uh, throw some questions my way now.
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, Tom, you know, I I emailed you, asked you if you're open to this idea. You were into it. I I think I gave you six or seven different pieces of research to digest. Uh, Obviously, a, a big task with a lot of information to think about, uh, you know, what was your overall approach to writing your, your piece of this report and really, you know, tackling this burden and making it more digestible for compliance teams?
0: Sure, Sean. So, uh, really, I tried to think through what would be a logical approach in terms of uh, either macro to micro or micro to macro. Uh, probably my law legal training always comes in, you um, where you list the facts, uh, the holding, and then the rationale uh, was beaten into us in law school. But it seemed to me that there were several very good um, pieces that we could uh, discuss that gave a compliance officer not only a sense of where we had been in 2018, but really where we were going. So I really tried to structure it in terms of what were some of the broadest trends Uh, literally economically across the globe? What were the business risks uh, that popped up? How did uh, regulators see their priorities? And what were the compliance issues or trends that we could spot going forward? And then uh, we had some significant events and actually in Q1. So I tried to really give uh, at least some thought as to where we might be going and what compliance practitioners needed to Think about going forward.
1: For what it's worth, I think you did. I think you did a great job. Uh, one of the first pieces of research um, on my list that I kind of handed over to you was the 2019 World Economic Forum Global Risk Report. And you know, the World Economic Forum is obviously a flagship event for the business community in Q1 of every year. And over the past few years, we've really seen an emphasis on ethics and sustainability. Um, you know, the regulatory impact of our changing kind of economic landscape, what were some of the highlights that you saw in the World Economic Forum's 2019 Global Risk Report?
0: So, Sean, uh, I typically don't think of the World Economic Forum's reports as really something that's directly applicable to compliance practitioners and certainly not someone who is in the nuts and bolts or really in the weeds of compliance. But when I took a step back, I realized that the world or global trends around risks, really uh, portend some of the specific business risks. So I thought it was interesting to look at the very big picture because that's what the World Economic Forum looks at in their Global Risk risk Reports 2019. And I identified four that I thought were going to be applicable for the Compliance Practitioner Going forward, one was technological risk, two was economic risk, three was environmental risk, and then four is political instability. And I guess the uh, tech risks, in addition to hacking issues around data privacy as well, are certainly on the forefront of many people and compliance practitioners. Uh, The economic risk is what's going to be the vulnerabilities of the global economy. Frankly, with uh, the leadership or lack of leadership of the United States on this key point. Uh, we are in uncharted waters, and so I think compliance practitioners need to be able or at least think through responding to that. And then the, the next two, environmental risks and political instability. Uh, what, what I really tried to get across there, Sean, was that w- wherever you might sit on the spectrum of uh, these issues, What I have seen is businesses being required to take a much more of a leadership role because certainly in the United States, government has abandoned these or at least cut back dramatically. And whether companies are being forced to because that's really in their business model, uh, climate risks, uh, financial instability or their stakeholders are demanding it, whether it be, uh, you know, we've seen uh, Google employees protest uh, around certain contracts between Google and the United States government, for instance, or uh, consumers. Consumers don't want to be associated with companies um, that violate uh, kind of established global norms. So I thought it was really interesting that what I might not normally would think of as a really a compliance risk because of the Instability and the lack of leadership for many countries. And it can be a reason, uh, if I could uh, talk about Brexit for just a moment, it's not that um, the government in the United Kingdom doesn't want to take a look at or consider environmental risks, but the oxygen was sucked out of the UK political system last year. And maybe for this year, at least up to Halloween, around Brexit as well. So there's not really addressing many of these issues and businesses have. So on a very macro level, I found it a fascinating exercise.
1: Yeah, and I think that we're at a really you know unique inflection point within the compliance industry where organizations are not just investing in compliance or building ethical cultures because they're required to by a regulator, but because they're really seeing the Economic and cultural benefit of building a business with those principles at the heart of it. Uh, And I think a lot of this research kind of reinforces that, but it's encouraging to see it moving in that direction. And I'm sure compliance teams can use that information to their own benefit when they're building their program. Now, the next piece of research that you analyzed was the Allianz Business Risk Barometer. And that was really more specifically looking at some of these business risks. what did you see in that report, Tom, and how did it kind of relate to some of what you saw in the World Economic Forum research?
0: So Allianz is in the insurance space. And so first of all, it was interesting because if there's any company that's going to understand risk, it's the company that rates and or makes money or losses on that risk. Because so that was sort of point one. Two is they surveyed over 2,400 risk management experts, and there were four general areas of uh, primary risk to business. Um, Certainly, you would not be surprised to see natural catastrophes or climate change as part of those, but also business interruption. And that could be in the form of political unrest. It could be a strike. It could be a wide variety of of areas. The third was uh, legislation and and regulatory change. And once again, that's not limited to one area of law. It could be as broadly as data privacy, data protection. It could be uh, human trafficking it could be uh, conflict minerals. It could be just a wide variety of areas. And, and the fourth and final general area was around technology. Interestingly, uh, the report acknowledged that technology is certainly a seen as a way to help manage risk, but the potential blowback for misuse can bring high costs to an organization. So uh, as a compliance professional, Sean, uh, living in Houston and having kind of gone through Ike, Natural catastrophes are certainly on the forefront of my mind, and perhaps uh, where you live uh, in New York after Sandy, that's something you think about more than you did before, but how does a compliance professional prepare for the time when he literally, he or she literally cannot communicate for a week because power is knocked out to the city you are in? Or conversely, uh, what happens if uh, a part of your operations is hit by a very large storm uh, outside of the United States, how are you going to communicate with those people, and how are you going to keep the lines open so that the business keeps running? But not simply the business part; all of the disciplines within your organization. So, uh, once again, I don't know if it's uh, because they're an insurance company, but I really found their uh, report thought-provoking and really, as you said, Sean, drilled down to a level that many companies face and indeed uh, the risk management experts they surveyed faced uh, suggested we all face as well
1: yeah and i think it's truly you know what makes that report unique is that what they're expressing as risks or as things to be concerned about aren't necessarily unique because i think everyone is concerned about the role that technology and data privacy plays in an organization or business continuity in, in the you know r- in response to a disaster But getting that unique industry specific lens on those kind of common share challenges, um, you know, creates unique insights, but it also can inspire uh, thought and kind of problem solving solutions to your own industry, which might be different from insurance, but, you know, maybe unintentionally there's some overlap that you didn't consider in the past. Um, So truly, you know, a really good piece of research. And I, I fondly remember the week uh, in New York when Sandy hit and, uh, I had no power whatsoever, and it certainly created a number of challenges that I didn't prepare for. Um, moving on to some of the regulatory enforcement priorities that were shared uh, in, in Q1, Tom, I know you kind of looked at some of the activity from an FCPA perspective, as well as SEC and FINRA and other kind of widespread regulatory enforcement. Uh, you know, what did you, you pick up on there that you want to share um, with the audience listening? You know, and of course, anyone interested in reading more about this you know, go download the report. Uh, we'll share details on how to do that later on, but uh, certainly more information shared there.
0: Sure, sure, Sean. So, on the regulatory side, I kind of broke it down into uh, an FCPA focused because many of my audience and your audience would have that concern, but also broader regulatory priorities that could lead to. Um, enforcement activities that might not be as foreseen right now. And in the FCPA world, we had a continued evolution of the uh, Department of Justice's thinking around enforcement of the FCPA, moving towards a more full uh, embrace of the corporate enforcement policy announced In late November 2017, we had that now for a little over a year, perhaps 15 months or so. But we had some modifications to that policy last year in terms of anti-piling on, applying the policy to mergers and acquisitions. We had a cutback on monitorships. At the end of the year, uh, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein gave a speech which modified the Yates Memo. Now, the Yates Memo has, has been around since September of 2015, but we saw really its its fullest fruition last year in terms of companies uh, turning over information on culpable individuals, and we saw a large number of individuals, the largest number in quite some time, uh, charged with FCPA violations. More than thirty individual defendants in FCPA-related cases and convictions of nineteen individuals, and we saw that uh, moving forward into Q1 of 2019 with the Cognizant Technologies FCPA enforcement action where, although the company received a declination, both uh, the CEO and CFO were individually indicted uh, for FCPA violations. And this is something, frankly, you know, we had not seen before inside of the United States, uh, maybe just once or twice. So um, really significant changes and continued evolution by the Department of Justice, but it was broader than, than simply FCPA because the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission obviously uh, has a role in FCPA, but they take a look at uh, other key issues. And we also looked at uh, FINRA and SEC examination priorities. And, Sean, what I found interesting there was that although these were not uh, anti-corruption compliance regulatory uh, uh, focus or goals, they really show that the SEC is much more concerned about internal controls. And whether that is internal controls around uh, your own uh, audit examination policies, whether it's around SOX 404 reporting requirements, or whether it's around FCPA internal controls, companies need to be able to demonstrate the effectiveness of financial controls, accounting controls, and compliance controls. And if you cannot, that may well be a violation of the uh, Securities Act. And here, uh, the fines and penalties may be less. Nevertheless, if you have to go back and re-audit or you have to restate earnings, that's going to be a significant financial and reputational hit. So when the SEC and FINRA start looking at internal controls, that's something that I think the anti-compliance practitioner needs to pay attention to, because that means that's coming perhaps uh, down the road further than 2019, but Uh, I think it's a clear signal the SEC is going to become much more robust in terms of looking at internal controls in a wide variety of areas that may not have led to regulatory or enforcement actions previously.
1: Yeah, and I was recently at the uh, CIFMA conference in Phoenix where there were some SEC and FINRA members there, uh, and they spoke about that. So I, I would actually recommend for people more interested in SEC and FINRA specific regulatory enforcement. If you go to SIFMA's website, they actually have a live stream um, from some of those sessions that were really interesting for that community. Um, you know, you made a great point also while you were while you were talking about that that you know not all of that activity might have the largest fines or the most significant kind of ramifications for noncompliance. But I do think that you know this idea of program effectiveness, not just from a training perspective, but across the entire compliance department is obviously top of mind and really essential. And that when there's a vulnerability, even if it's a small one, and if that raises a red flag from a regulatory perspective, that might just expose a more, you know, thorough examination of your compliance program for everything else, right? So even that small thing that you might overlook or might not think is a huge risk, um, that could be the catalyst for a more thorough regulatory kind of lens on your organization.
0: You know, it's a great point, Sean, and that's something that uh, I think we're going to frankly see more and more of, and that that sort of testing of effectiveness, uh, the department, both the Department of Justice, SEC, and FINRA, they all know what uh, an effective compliance program is. Uh, They know what a paper program is. But what you as a compliance practitioner have to do is demonstrate effectiveness. So how are you going to document, document, document that you've not only tested your program, but it's either effective or you've effectively remediated to get it up to being effective? So that's an excellent
1: point. And for anyone interested in learning more about compliance program effectiveness, Tom literally wrote a book about it. So, you know, highly recommend checking that out if you haven't already.
0: So, uh, Sean, I guess I wanted to see if I could uh, give a few thoughts about compliance going forward because you alluded to um, in your opening uh, remarks that there were uh, a couple of interesting papers that came out in Q1 of 2019 about uh, really, um, I think, uh, something that compliance practitioners have known intuitively for quite some time but uh, really didn't have the document- documentary evidence to show. And the first one was... Ethisphere's World's Most Ethical Company Awards uh, this year found a true financial premium of companies with ethical leadership. And they found that company honorees who, companies who won the awards, uh, outperformed large cap sector over five years by 14.4% and over three years by 10%. Ethisphere dubbed this the ethics premium, and that really spoke to Uh, a clear demonstration that companies that have robust compliance programs, and that means, uh, excuse me, it's more than robust compliance programs. It is uh, ethics embedded into the organization, starting with leadership, starting with Tone at the Top, but throughout the organization. Then right at the end of
1: Isn't that great? I, I mean, for years Ethisphere and other people have been collecting data trying to prove just that point And now there is real tangible evidence that you could bring to your board or bring to your C-suite and say, listen, if we invest in this, it might actually help our bottom line.
0: Well, it's not that it may, Sean, that it will help your bottom line. And um, interestingly, actually much more interestingly, I thought it was a great piece of academic research. At the end of uh, 2018, a gentleman named Dr. Kyle Welch, who's an assistant professor at George Washington uh, released a paper on evidence and use of efficacy of internal whistleblowing systems. Um, Dr. Welch looked at 15 years of anonymized data from uh, Navex Global on their hotline reporting. And what he found was that companies with not simply a hotline, but a robust whistleblower and reporting system, a speak-up culture that was honored, there was no retaliation or uh, or retaliation was uh, protected, had greater profitability, had greater workforce productivity. But most importantly, there were fe- fewer material lawsuits. And these mean this means lawsuits of civil lawsuits, such as sexual harassment, but also meant regulatory fines and penalties. And uh, I think it was a full 10% less. And that really, for a billion-dollar corporation, think of your legal budget um, if you could reduce your spend on uh, litigation, on enforcement actions, on defending enforcement actions by a factor of 10%, that, that's real dollars. So, this was really the first time we had seen a specific tool in a compliance program, and here it was whistleblowing systems, but it wasn't just a hotline. It was an entire culture around whistleblowing. So, that was a, a really great piece of information, and frankly, I'm looking forward to what Dr. Welch might come up with in the future. And it really had ended, Sean, with, or at least my my portion of this project ended with a concept that I think a lot of compliance practitioners are hearing about or talking about more, which is connected compliance. And that, uh, we took a look at a Baker McKenzie white paper on this topic, which was entitled Connected Compliance, the Business Case for Compliance Integration, and this was uh, a great way to talk about what the Department of Justice started talking about several years ago in terms of operationalizing compliance. It means finding the right balance between strategic growth and compliance to increase business value and connects compliance strategy leaders, aligning compliance and commercial goals. So, uh this is something that every compliance practitioner is moving forward on, and the regulators are starting to talk about this as well. So, we can, when we can get uh, cutting through the silos, cutting through the different disciplines within an organization to work towards having an integrated, fully operationalized compliance program, this is going to not only make compliance better, but that's going to kick us back into sort of points one and two on this topic, Sean, which are um, the improved uh, or lessened, rather, litigation and investigation costs leading to the improved ethics premium that Ethisphere has found in looking at uh, companies who win the world's most ethical awards.
1: Yeah, and, and listen, for folks like you and other members of the compliance community that have been doing this for a long time, I think that in your heart, And at an individual level, you might have known a lot of this, you might have felt a lot of this to be true, but to have indisputable academic research and data collected over years, that really lays it out pretty clearly. If you invest in this, if you build an ethical culture and take employee hotline complaints seriously and, you know, establish that tone from the top and from the middle and really invest in building a compliance program that isn't just a paper program that checks a regulatory box, but, you know carries the same weight as any other department within your organization would, it'll work out for the best. And I think, you know, we're probably scratching the surface of that research. And really, you know, a decade from now might look back at 2018 and 2019 as the year when things started tipping in the, in, in the right direction. Um, but I think we've, you know, kind of opened Pandora's box and there's no turning back now. It's really just going to hopefully, I, I think, continue to escalate in a way that you know demonstrates the importance of compliance and ethics within co- corporate culture.
0: Sean, that uh, seems to be a great place to end this podcast. So let me go back to interviewing you for a question or two. Is uh, where can listeners go to find out uh, more about the Q1 2019 Compliance Risk and Regulations Research Roundup by Hanzo?
1: Sure, you can go to Hanzo.co. Backslash compliance and risk 2019. You can also Google Hanzo compliance and risk and it should pop up on the first Google search result. Or you could just visit Hanzo's website, which is Hanzo.co, and you'll be able to find it from the homepage. Um if you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, it's on my profile too. My name is Sean Friedlin. I'm the only one, so uh, you know you'll be able to find me pretty easily. Um, and, you know, if you follow Tom on social media, you might have seen him sharing it. But if you visit his LinkedIn or his Twitter profile, you'll probably be able to see it uh, there pretty quickly without scrolling too far. So definitely encourage you, anyone to download it. Uh, it's free. You know, give us your name and your email address. I, I hope that's a fair trade tradeoff. Um, but, we, you know, hopefully we'll do it every quarter. Work with Tom to really put it out and, you know, just continue to shine a spotlight on great work being done by the community and shorten it in a way that could be. Digested, you know, without occupying too much of your time, because we all know that compliance officers can be quite busy.
0: And I would just add that, in addition to the written text uh, uh, that was part of my my part of this project, Sean added uh, just a ton of great graphics and links to this report. The Hanzo team came up with uh, additional research that they uh, put into this. Uh, Report. So there's a lot in here, but it's designed specifically for the compliance practitioner and to synthesize a wide body of information that you can utilize, not only, like I said, when we started, where we've been, but more importantly, where we're going. Sean, this was a ton of fun for me. I look forward to doing it again.
1: Thank you, Tom. Hello,
0: everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. It was fun for me to be interviewed, particularly by Sean, because he's a great interviewer. We have linked to the Hanzo Q1 2019 Compliance Risk and Regulations Research Roundup in the show notes. I hope you will uh, download it. It's a free ebook from Hanzo. It will definitely provide you with lots of solid information about not only where we have been, but where we are going and many of the risks that you will face going forward. I hope you will join me again next week for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network.
1: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.